this is what we do, right? We try and make things better. <laughs> There's a, a note on the board that someone had left to, uh, for me and Andrea, it says un- unsigned and not to either of us, just in that corner. One of you left a sweet note saying, I don't want to go home, <laughs> exclamation point. <laughs> which I hope doesn't mean that home is so terrible. It means that being here is good. Uh, I hope that's the case. Um, kind of turning that idea around a little bit of uh, I don't want to go home. I was thinking about uh, talking a little bit about trust tonight or this afternoon and it's an interesting topic for me. It it seems like in one way or another most of what I offer has this flavor of trust uh, in it and I feel as if a lot of maybe how I experience the practice is through the lens of trust and that's why uh, it comes up as a topic in my mind. So the idea of going home, I think there is in some ways what the Dharma is inviting us to do is to come home. And this arriving in our experience completely and fully so that there isn't really this uh, distinction or dichotomy about what going home is like in this world. And where do we feel safe? What sort of states of mind or emotional states do we feel like our home or most familiar? And now it's uh, I I travel a lot and feels like over over the years now as I move around um, there's just this feeling in my heart that where I go I'm at home I'm at home and I might be in my home I might be on the street I might be talking to someone I don't know. But there's this increasing sense of I'm at home, being at home. I believe on the first night, Andrea was speaking about where we normally take our refuge. Where do we normally go for refuge? And most of our refuge tends to be around things that can bring us some kind of comfort and ease. Just familiar patterns in our life where we go for refuge. And yet, you know, the Dharma, the teachings kind of reveal the way the world is, which is 
We're in a world of flux, of change. It's unpredictable what's going to happen. And things aren't in our control. It's unreliable, uncertain. We never know when the body is going to get injured, get sick. We'll get an illness, one form or another. Don't know when we'll be impacted by something someone says or does. So in this world that is like this, these characteristics, how do we find a refuge? How do we find a sense of ease and well-being? I was um, teaching recently at IMS. Uh, there's another teacher there that likes to rock climb and invited me to go rock climbing with him. And it's not something I, I really, I don't rock climb. <laughs> Is that the verb? I don't do rock climbing. No, I don't rock climb. I don't do rock climbing. That kind of shows I'm not a rock climber. <laughs> so I went rock climbing and uh, it was indoors in the gym. And yeah, you get all strapped in and the ropes are there and they tell you this is, you know, it's all checked, double checked, triple checked, the ropes are all strong. And, you know, and I see kids going zooming up and down and, you know, very comfortable. And I watch my mind, I'm, I'm a Dharma teacher. <laughs> so I watch my mind and it's very clear what's happening. So, yeah, I climb up, and that's fine. fine. Climbing is fine. So then on the way down, you know, you're supposed to push off <laughs> from the wall, and, you know, you're 60 feet up or something. Now, I know holding onto the rope is going to do nothing. <laughs> and yet, as soon as I push off the wall, there's this, like, cl- absolute clinging onto the rope. And I'm watching the mind do it like the hands are totally holding on. I'm thinking, if the rope breaks anywhere but between my hands, you know, and this belt, it's not going to help. And, and anyways, <laughs> even if it were to break, I don't think my holding right here is going to do much. And yet the whole system clings. Totally clinging. So instinctual. Right? It's, it's, what we're wired for is to, is to, kind of self-protect and uh, you know, take care. I was thinking how sensitive uh, these bodies are, so sensitive. And it's like, there's almost like a perfect setup uh, in coming into the world for some kind of injury to happen, some kind of suffering one way or another. 
and it's it's happening all the time you know all you have to do is be a little bit aware and mindful and it's impossible to miss how sensitive this organism is and in buddhist cosmology it's said that the human realm now i don't know about the truth of cosmology but in terms of what it says about this experience of the human realm it seems oh this is true which is it's it's perfectly set up for both suffering to arise I'm like yeah that seems to be true that's a perfect setup for that we've got a lot of tender uh, neuronal endings and a lot of emotional capacities and the mind uh, and heart take everything that happens to it very personally so it's very much uh, those are the conditions for suffering to arise. But it's also said to be the perfect conditions in which freedom can be discovered. Freedom can be realized. And then we can walk a path that brings us greater ease and well-being. So in other realms, it says either there's too much pleasantness that there's no drive to awaken, to understand the lawfulness of the universe, and the universal experience, the laws of experience. And there's no need, right? And then in other uh, ways of being embodied there in the animal world, let's say, there's also a lot of suffering, but there's no capacity to to wake up, to be aware, to observe in the moment what's arising, to grow the wisdom. And so we have this unique opportunity. And we can actually transform what is natural to the human experience and transform it into freedom, transform it into well-being. And the Dalai Lama had once made a, a comment to Western teachers um, about a basic way that a lot of Buddhists see themselves, is that they see themselves very fortunate that they have this opportunity to practice. And he was saying that in response, it's a, f a well-known story in, in Dharma circles, he was saying that in response to these teachers reporting uh, the tendency of the inner critic to arise. Andrew was calling it self-hatred, but just some basic aversion of oneself. And then most of the teachers, the Western teachers, agreed that they were experiencing that, and that was really quite surprising to the Dalai Lama, apparently, His Holiness, that that would be so strong, he said, because in you're raised kind of culturally in, in the Dharma, you're taught that you're lucky right from the outset. You're so lucky. We have this chance to practice. And I think that maybe growing up in the West, uh, 
were like those laboratory mice uh, that Andrea was referring to. And we happen to have the label, you know, we're like the Western mice. And it says over, over our cage, you're unlucky. <laughs> you know, you're unlucky to be you. <laughs> I was like, well, what's that going to do to the mind over the years? You know, but if, if you're told you're so lucky, you're so lucky to get to, to be here, you know, to, to be in this life, this experience, we're lucky. And I think now the more that I'm in the Dharma, the more I really do feel lucky. This is, this is an amazing opportunity to take care of what really ought to be taken care of, taking care of what's of most value. I lived on staff at IMS uh, for a while. And at one point it just struck me so powerfully. And it really, it brought me to tears. I thought, God, this whole center is designed for our well-being. Every word that's been spoken here from the Dharma seat and the intentions of all the beings, all the yogis that have practiced, all supported for our well-being. So pure, so wholesome. You know, in my kind of little bit of um, jaded and skeptical mind, kind of feels like, well, there's got to be other motives in there. I mean, there's filled with other minds, for sure. A lot of minds occupy places, and so there's lots of stuff whirling about. But the basic intention of centers like here that we're in, so pure, just caring, care about suffering, supporting well-being. Speaking of uh, sort of the jaded, little jaded tendency, I was teaching a couple years ago in Czech Republic heritage of Andrea Fella. <laughs> Are you full Czech? Is that your complete? Quarter. Quarter, uh, quarter Czech. Okay. We'll go there together sometime. Teach. So I had been getting some feedback from some of the yogis and it was, it was uh, very good feedback. Now that's not always the case, but in this case, a very good feedback. And I was telling the translator, and it's because, you know, I was kind of asking, well, what do they, you know, they, how am I doing? Am I offering something useful? And, and I said, yeah, but you, you heard the yogis say what they said. I think, yeah, but I don't know if that's what they really mean. You know, they're saying something, they're just trying to make me feel good or, as I know that that's what they, that's what they're saying. So that's what they, they mean, and we went through this process for a while. 
And um, and then I spoke to some, a couple of Czech, a Czech couple there, uh, a couple after the retreat, who had lived in the U.S. And they said, you know, there is something different culturally in the U.S. and the Czech Republic. Apparently, um, I don't know how big the, the region th- that this is true, but at least in the Czech Republic, some the conditioning is that basically uh, you say what's true. You don't, you don't change it. So if someone on the street says, how are you doing? And you're not, well, first off, they don't, they apparently don't say that that often because if you ask how you're doing, you're asking how are you doing? And then you're going to get a, a report. Well, this is how I'm doing. Whereas we say, how are you? You know, it's kind of like a goodwill, a gesture of kindness. How are you? And we're not, ho- we're not really looking for like the big uh, download <laughs> on how they're doing, um, which we will cover actually as we're, le- as we're leaving. And, you know, that when you go home and people ask you how the retreat was, they're just saying, hi. <laughs> 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 they're not asking how the retreat was. <laughs> so we had this discussion about is that really true? Are they really, you know, the people re- people really saying what they mean? And apparently, that's actually the case. Um, that, and these, the, my friends and translators were saying, if someone tells you that they liked the the talk or something, they're saying they liked the talk. That's it. End of story. And. And then if there's something that they didn't understand and they don't like, they'll just tell you. They don't, they don't understand that. That point was completely relevant when I started out. <laughs> I love it when the mind does that. It's like knows for sure why it was making some point. And then, doof. Um, well, I'll just go with whatever was coming. But so, I don't know if that's if that's culturally really the best way to be because they also said there's something very nice about the way uh, kind of my Americans are conditioned, which is to try and uplift and maybe say positive things to one other one another. But there was something that I kind of felt in that uh, ability to trust that when someone was saying something to me, I knew what they meant. And how we're leaving, it was from my mind because I was, uh, I think getting over the years, you know, if you don't, if we don't have really right speech, our intuition kind of picks up mixed messages and we never really know what we mean. We don't know what the other person means. One of the practices in right speech is to speak what's true. And that's, you know, that's a practice that, that's not easy to do. There's other practices in right speech. It has to be timely, 
has to be useful and beneficial with a loving heart. It's a lot of parameters for right speech that we can practice and work with. We're coming to a center where the motivations are so clear and coming to a spiritual practice where the encouragements are very clear. We don't have to buy into anything, don't have to believe anything, not us to do anything that's against our own understanding. I find my sense of trust in that has gotten so strong. Amazing faith. And so, just considering what it is that you trust. I think we have a phrase that in English, something like, everything will work out. Everything will be okay. So, it's interesting, on one level, I now feel that to be true, but it's on a very different level than the literal meaning, meaning of that, that everything will be okay. So when we have our trust in wrong views, views that have expectations about the world, about other people, about the government, about the body or health. Our trust is really, really more based in expectation, ideas about how we want things to be. That kind of trust is not pointing us in the right direction. I spoke in a couple groups about the idea of trusting someone else. It really occurred to me at one point in my own relationships, my own dynamic with other people, that the reason why I would get hurt was my trust was really misplaced. I was trusting that they would do what I wanted them to do. Right, or trusting that they would only act out of kindness or only act out of uh, what an enlightened person would do. And of course, that's not going to happen. So when, we are, when our own understanding of, our, of these processes of our own mind are clear, we see our own nature how easy it is to become reactive, 
get lost to follow the stories of our mind. And we see that over and over again, over and over again. This is how our own wisdom is growing. Insights. Insights into other people. Insights into our community, our families. So that when someone's doing something unskillful and it's impacting us, already there's understanding. Conditions are there for that to arise. So then the trust really is trusting in the lawfulness of how things happen. It's not going to be otherwise. So then we can really trust if the seeds of goodness and kindness are arising in the other mind. I trust that that's going to give rise to kind action, some kind words. And I trust if the mind of the other is in a reactive state, overwhelmed, fearful, deluded, whatever it is. The trust can be that probably that person is going to speak and act unskillfully. The mind isn't as surprised. Also feeling into all the changing states of mind and heart that we sit with. And you've each reported so much of what you've seen. Some of it is the wholesome factors of mind arising, steadiness growing, mindfulness gaining some momentum. But also a lot of reporting of this maybe not expressly stated, but trust, trusting in watching what's arising. That what is here is a good enough thing to be aware of as it is, as it is. It's natural for the mind to evaluate and think that one experience is better than another. But every time we remember wisely the nature of experience, the lawfulness of mind, natural processes happening, We learn to trust a bit more. This is exactly what's arising. It ought to be arising. It's a perfectly fine thing for it to be here. (coughs) And the sense of struggle, right, of holding on to the rope with dear life, controlling, starts to ease up.
the direction of our practice over the years, long periods of time. To feel like the trust is coming in. Not that things are going better necessarily, but that it's okay to be with what's arising. It's okay to be with this. This is sufficient for awareness, sufficient to learn from. I think as I learn to, in my own practice, learn how to arrive in the teaching role or the speaking role, part of what's changing for me, I can see it, I'll just speak about my own process, is if I can trust that what is happening for you, for anyone listening, that that's kind of up to them. Up to them, you know, up to you, how you take it in, how the mind's reacting. I can also trust this space and silence. I don't need to then try and get things to be perfect. A lot of our efforts are to make things perfect. So surrendering really is part of the path. Being willing to be vulnerable enough that we're with what's happening and it's fine, it's okay. And the mind, kind of the personality mind, in my mind, thinks, oh, now it's got to say something and it's got to fix the next moment or, you know, listening to that. So part of our practice, and I hope, you know, you do take the time, if you haven't already, in the morning to try to speak with someone else and practice we all have more momentum now in awareness and wisdom, right view, than when we were arrived. 
and for these conditions to come together and to have the container for that. It's really, really valuable opportunity. You don't have to make anything happen, but just the willingness to be present with someone and the vulnerability of that. listening to a brief little talk by a Tibetan monk, Anam. His name is Anam Tubten. And he was sharing about uh, an illness he was going through, some very, very painful experience. He said, just overwhelming pain. And You know, sharing that as a you know as someone that goes around teaching about the Dharma, he wanted to be able to, in the midst of that pain, kind of transcend and rise above it, and you know hope that he'd be able to report that he was someone able to transcend pain. And he said at some point along that whole process. He discovered that he really couldn't overcome it. And he had to just surrender to wherever it was taking him. And he said it was very humbling. He had these ideas of how much he could, through the power of his mind, kind of overcome something. He said when he surrendered, something really remarkable happened. Even though the pain was there, it was like he was just on the ride. Didn't fight kind of taking painkillers or thrashing about if he needed to. There was just this release, you know, non-conflict. And he realized that a lot of his teachings a little bit were somehow this message that we're going to transcend rather than meet, open to. So much is going to be really out of our control. And the Dharma, really deep teachings of the Dharma that we're going to meet along the way, you know, it's going to challenge us. Can I meet this? What am I clinging to? And seeing the mind cling is no problem. You know, when I was feeling myself hold desperately onto the rope, 
I remember just, I was giggling. I was like, this is so funny. I'm not that afraid to die. But it's funny that I'm clinging so desperately to this rope. And I think if I had to have it be otherwise, it would have been shameful, you know. Maybe if you all were there watching me cling to the rope desperately, it would have been more shameful. Because <laughs> I would have thought, oh, they know I'm a teacher and I shouldn't be clinging to this rope. But it's not a problem. <laughs> Just it's the way it is. There's an analogy I'd, I'd like to mention. Of the Dhamma, how the process works. So the way that we are bound to experiences, the analogy is given it's like a boat that has been tied to uh, to the dock and the rope is resting in the water. And as the rope is there, day after day, week after week, month, month after month, year after year, the water is slowly, strand by strand, weakening the threads. So it's a thick rope, and imperceptibly the rope is getting softened, weakened. Then at some point, maybe a gust of wind comes along and just a little tug and the rope gives and the boat is free. Our practice of watching habits of mind are like that. In Tibetan Buddhism it's said that, you know, we, we watch 
tens of thousands, maybe a hundred thousand times a pattern in the mind. And maybe the first thousand times, 10,000 times, we get this inkling that maybe someone's behind us, following us. It's like maybe someone's back there. Not sure, but I think there's someone following me. It's a habit of mind. And then the next, let's say, we'll call it 100,000 times just to give us a lot of room. So the next 100,000 times, you know, we then start to face it and turn around and we go, oh, hmm, why are you following me? Who are you? Right? We're starting to recognize what it is. And then the next 100,000 times, start to understand its nature. If 100,000 times seems too many to you, make it five. However many it's going to take is really the point. And if it's a lot and patterns are still present, then that should be reassuring. Right? And if you want to get through them more quickly, then just say, okay, it's going to be 20 times. We have to watch things 20 times. But if it's the 21st time, just think, okay, 21 times. And then 22. And how long is it going to take? So can we trust in the process of seeing, seeing conditions, seeing the conditionality of the mind? Right? As long as conditions are present, then this is what's arising. These patterns are here. So we keep watching, keep bringing in whatever wisdom is available, whatever patience, whatever, whatever understanding it might be, even not doing, trusting, letting go, let the practice work on us. And life becomes an adventure then we're willing to live, be along the ride for. We're going to go up and down, up and down, roller coaster. Learning how to be mindful on the way up. And learning to be mindful on the way down. Challenges. And then easeful places where we're just coasting the entire terrain of life, being with ourselves, you know, being with ourselves, ordinary moments, brushing our teeth, taking a shower, I had an insight recently into how much I lean into the hot water of a shower. I had no idea that I kind of like, have like an energy of, it's like, that's well pretty obvious, but it's a lot of liking of the warmth of hot shower. And just seeing the mind switch between that unconscious craving that's going on and just the recognition, pleasantness, the mind is unhooked. We're 
constantly being bombarded or being impacted by our cravings, our aversions, seeing it, you know, ordinary moments, just ordinary seeing. You might be driving a car soon. It's interesting driving a car, how much energy we put in to driving a car. And yet we're using very few muscles, actually. It's like the weight of our foot and then you know, holding the steering wheel. And yet we can get in you know, totally, totally involved in the activity of driving, like it's a full, you know, full contact sport. <laughs> driving, you know, we're driving our bodies around like it's a full contact sport. And yet how much energy really is needed to drive these bodies around, walk them around, see, hear, smell, feel, learning to really let go into trusting this natural process, being this body, being this mind. I really appreciate the practice you're doing. It supports my own practice to keep going and have the opportunity to speak about things that are meaningful and true and valuable. After one of the rains, I was walking down the hill where the, the water was flowing down and I was walking downhill with the stream flowing and there are all the, these bubbles that had you know, formed in the stream that was flowing. Just watching the bubbles form and I'm walking down along with them and stay a lot longer than I thought they would. And then at some point burst. You know. Hmm. Yeah, so we get conditioned by images. So the next time I was in here, I had this image of all of us being these bubbles. Beautiful, perfect spherical bubbles. And yet, you know, so transient. We're going to just last for a little while. You know, so we spend this time doing what's meaningful. really makes a difference.
you know, I hope something I've shared with you is supportive in your practice or on your path. And thank you for your attention. We'll uh, just sit for a few moments together. <laughs> 